This is David Wilson, and welcome to episode 73 of On Another Track. We've been enjoying watching your videos actually on YouTube. It's been very interesting, actually. So you've got many, many years of broadcasting, eh? Not really. I mean, I've got years of broadcasting on the internet, but not, you know, conventional broadcasting. You know, not like BBC or anything like that. They never really gave me that many gigs. That's the voice this week of my guest, Dominic Frisbee. He's a successful author, composer, and comedic guru, and all things financial. Welcome along to my podcast series, On Another Track. We're here to explore people and places from around the world. We hear the stories that have transformed my guest's journey and help them get on another track. It's not always pretty, but if you need that practical advice to figure out the roadblocks ahead, then you can't go wrong by learning from other people's mistakes. It's an enlightening experience and a great journey. I first discovered Dominic on the Virgin podcast series way back in 2015. He was sacked from that job for trying to present a balanced view on climate change. That didn't deter him from speaking his mind and helping others to make great financial decisions. He's the world's only financial writer and comedian, and he's Money Week's main commentator on gold, commodities, currencies, and cryptocurrencies. And he's also the author of umpteen books on taxation, Bitcoin, and the state. His passions include beer, playing football, dabbling with helium, and losing weight. What more could you expect from a guy who's composed the 17 million F-off song that went viral in 2018? Our first question for Dominic was, how did he get started in the diversified businesses that he's in? You are an author, songwriter, broadcaster, actor, documentary maker, regular at the Edinburgh Festival, by the way, voiceover guru, and public speaker. What don't you do? Uh, anything science-y. That's fair enough. I'm not very good at that. But so tell me how you got on that road. I mean, what's that all about? Um, well, I think I do lots of different things because I've always been a bit scared to do one thing in case it doesn't work out. So it's a bit like having a diversified stock portfolio. You, you, you do lots of things and then if they all work a little bit, it sort of all works out fine in the end. But I went to, uh, university, obviously I'm 53 now, but I went to university when I was 18 and I did Italian and drama and I had this idea that I wanted to be a writer. So I went to drama school after I left university because in my opinion, all the best writers had started out as actors, Dickens, Shakespeare, and loads of others besides, I think even Mark Twain may have started out as an actor. And, um, and then when I was at uh, drama school, for whatever reason, I probably lost a sight of the big picture a bit as you do. And, um, I used to write comic bits of verse and comic songs and stuff, but I, I actually used to write comic raps cause I've never been able to write music, but I can, I've always had an ear for a catchy lyric. And, um, but I was the best at radio in my class <laughs> for some reason. And I used to do loads of work with my dad, who was an actor on voice and speech when I was young. So maybe that's why, but anyway, I got a voiceover agent like before I'd even left drama school. And on my very first week after leaving drama school, I had my first voiceover job. And it's a very well-paid job and you get treated very well. And it was a year-long contract doing this thing, uh, this tennis programme. And so I just always got a lot of work doing voiceovers. And so that was, we're now in the early 90s, mid-90s. And then from there, even though I had a lot of work doing voiceovers, a voiceover typically only lasts an hour or two. So you have a lot of time in between jobs. So I carried on writing my bits of comic verse and I wrote this song that I wanted to get released as a Christmas novelty single in in those days in the 90s the comic songs would always come out at Christmas and I approached my friend who'd been a 
who I'd been at university with, who was a now music agent. And I said to him, I've got this song. And he said, I'll go and do it in my brother's club. And his brother was a, a guy called Malcolm Hardy, who's a sort of legend in comedy, no, no longer with us. And he had this club in, in South East London in Greenwich called Up the Creek. And on a Sunday, he would have the open spots and all the locals would go down and boo off the open spots. And it was a bit of a sort of famous sort of bun fest, bun fight. And, and I went down there and uh, I did this song, the upper class rap, and it, it went down very well. But the tradition was if you went down well, they gave you a paid booking. And that the paid booking came the following Friday. And then that went well and I got another paid booking and then that went well and I got a paid 20. And so suddenly, and then they phoned up other clubs and suddenly I was a stand-up comic. So I sort of fell into stand-up comedy. And once you do a gig and there's 250 people in the la- in the room all laughing at what you're saying, it's pretty addictive pretty quickly. And so I was a sort of then a comedian and voiceover and now we're in the mid mid noughties and my dad had written this play called uh kisses on a postcard which he turned into a musical and i'd fallen in love with it and it had been done in this regional theater my dad was quite a well-known playwright he wrote the longest running comedy in the history of the west end called there's a girl in my suit and he'd written this play all about his experiences as an evacuee during world war ii and He'd written it as a radio play and then this, and it was option to be a film. And anyway, this production of this play got put on in Barnstable in 2004 in North Devon uh, with a community theatre project. So it was only pro professional actors in the main two or three roles. And I just fell in love with it. And everyone who saw it did. And I was like, this has to go to the West End. And, but we needed like three or five million quid to, to get it into the West End. And, and I was thinking, how the hell are we going to get three or five million quid? And I had a bit of my own money anyway. And I was looking to invest that. And I thought, well, if I can somehow turn this money into three or five million quid, then we can take this thing to the West End. And and my experiences of the entertainment industry is that it's no good waiting around for somebody at the BBC or a commissioner somewhere to go and go, we want to make your film. Because it just, it happens, but it never seems to happen to me for whatever reason. So my attitude is always just to go and do it yourself. And so that, you know, that was the same attitude. And so I was trying to work out, and there were all these interesting people on the internet talking about commodities and especially gold. This is in the mid-noughties. And uh, I wanted to find a way of meeting these people without having to pay them 300 quid an hour or whatever they charge for investment advice. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And this was in the early days of podcasts. So I started a podcast and I soon discovered that, you know, everyone's happy to go and talk on podcasts, whether they're just out of generosity a lot of the time or maybe they're promoting something, whatever, but it's, it's not that hard. And the first person I ever interviewed was Jim Rogers, who was like number two to George Soros. And, you know, that's a pretty big coup for your first ever interview. It was a financial podcast about investing. And, you know, he was a billionaire and this is naughties. Billionaires are rarer then than they are now. And the next person I interviewed was like James Turk. And then I interviewed a silver guy called David Morgan. And then it was a guy called Jim Dines. I don't even know if Jim Dines is still alive, but he was a big, famous uranium newsletter writer. And we we recorded this uranium podcast that was submitted to the Guinness Book of Records for being the longest ever podcast on the subject of uranium. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, tell me, tell me, you got to tell me how long it was. How long was it? It was like three hours or something. Incredible. Over three hours, and I know three hour podcasts are sort of semi normal now, but it was it was a big deal at the time because the long form thing hadn't taken over. But because a lot of these people were talking about gold, I went down and a question that always. Um, 
I'd never been able to understand why house prices in London were so expensive relative to what people earned. And it always bugged me and annoyed me. And once you start going down the gold rabbit hole and you find out about fiat money and inflation and all the rest of it, it was like, you know, it was a rabbit hole that I went down and never come out of it. And from there, this guy came along and asked me to write this film for him called Four Horsemen, which was a very successful film on the internet. We ended up falling out, but I wrote that. Re- he'd written it and it was a mess and I rewrote it, re-edited it. And then... Well, I didn't actually edit it, but I was sat next to the editor for three months and said, put this bit here and put that bit there, you know. And I was never properly credited for that film. And there was a big falling out. And most of us that worked on it didn't get paid. And it was quite a night. It was all about economic reform. And at the heart of it was a great big rip off. But that so that annoyed me. But anyway, it showed to me that I could write about, you know, it had like nine million views or something on YouTube. It was a big, big hit. It had named Chomsky and all sorts of others in it. It was a big, big hit in sort of 2010, Four Horsemen. And it showed me that I, maybe it was 2011, 2012, but around about then. And it showed me that I can write about, just because I'm a voiceover artist and a comedian, I can still write about big economic subjects. I forgot to say, one of the people I interviewed in my podcast was a lady called Meryn Somerset Webb, who was the head of Money Week and FT journalist. And she said, oh, we need people like you writing for us for Money Week. And I said, well, I don't know what I'm talking about. And she said, it doesn't matter. And so she offered me a weekly column. And I still write that weekly column now, 15 years on, 16 years on. And so, you know, it was very popular, the column, because I was writing about financial stuff, but with the discipline of the comedian who always needs to make sure he's understood, because if he's not understood, people don't laugh. And so it showed to me that I was able to write about finance. That led to the Four Horsemen. It showed to me I was able to write big stuff. So I've wrote a book that was very popular called Life After the State. And then the argument of life after the state was that if we're going to save the world and reduce the size of the state and reduce invasive government and most of the things that are wrong in the world can be traced back to some bad policy idea. And we need to reduce the size of government, but we can't while we operate under a fiat money system because government prints money and when one body in a society has the ability to print money at no cost to itself and nobody else has that power it inevitably means the body that has that power is going to be disproportionately large which is what's happened with the state and the welfare state and all the rest of it so money reform and gold has always been at the heart and then while i was writing that somebody came along with bitcoin and so there was a chapter in life after the state which is i think the first chapter in bitcoin in a in a published book saying maybe Bitcoin's the answer. My second book was then called Bitcoin, the future of money. It was the first book about um, Bitcoin from a recognized publisher. That was 2013, 2014. And then I wrote another book about the history of taxation, because if ever there was a zero patient, patient zero is like in a Hollywood film, you know, in a zombie film, I should say, if they want to get to the virus, they have to kill patient zero or, you know, either you kill patient zero or patient zero has got the antidote. So that's a trope. And I think in a society, patient zero is money and tax. It's the two of them. And, you know, if you fix your tax system, then everything else, everything else falls into place. So I wrote this book about the history of taxation called Daylight Robbery, and that, that's been very popular as well. And while doing that, I was having ukulele lessons, and I discovered that my ukulele teacher is a brilliant musician. And I would say I've got this idea for I've got this lyric and I'd do that and he'd say no play an A7 there and play a G minor there or whatever and suddenly we found ourselves writing these songs and then um, when Brexit was happened 2016 I think it was about 2017 or 2018 
it looked like it wasn't going to happen. You know, Theresa May was prime minister. Every parliament, every the whole system was trying to stop it happening. Uh, and I had this idea for a song, which is that, you know, there was this whole thing in the lead up to Brexit, Project Fear. And, you know, it's going to cost £4,300 for every home. There's going to be a stock market crash. There's going to be a house price crash. There's going to be uh, super gonorrhea. They actually said there's going to be an outbreak. They said all these things. And I said, I've got this idea for this song. And it goes every time they said this thing. And then the English just went F off. And it just carried on going like that. So I, and, and my teacher said, oh, this would work well if you took this old folk tune and did it like that. And we did it. And I remember we did it. We, we wrote the song in a lesson on the Monday. And on the Tuesday, I went and tried it out in a comedy club. And people coming up to, and I wasn't playing the right, it was a mess. But people coming up to me going, that song was brilliant. That was really good. And on the Wednesday, we went and recorded it in a studio. And on a Thursday, we went and made the video. And I put it on the internet on the Friday. And by Sunday, it had just gone totally bananas it's just one of those things it just went to it hit chime it hit real chord and it just went totally viral and you know i really like writing comic songs and and it's all i've ever really in i mean i've enjoyed lots of things but first and foremost i want to write comic songs and so that sort of created a whole sideline writing comic songs and so that's how i've ended up in this weird position of being a financial writer with you know i've got my substack frisbee.substack.com is is one of the top 20 financial substacks in the world now. And that's pretty good because Britain, you know, we're competing against America and America's audience is six or seven times as big as British audience. And then at the same time, I'm writing comic songs and doing shows and, and getting good numbers into the show. So it's it's all working out pretty well. I distilled from all of that, I mean, this is an incredible history, but I distilled from that that you're a great networker. And your timing's spot on. I think that's the two things I got out of that. I'm not a good networker, actually, but podcasting is the most fantastic networking tool because in one interview in an hour, you'll get through way more than you would if you met up for coffee. But it's just, there's something heightened about an interview that just forces this, it accelerates everything. And particularly when you interview people in person, you know, you just build up a relationship with people very quickly. And and I'm sure this applies to you, but it applies to, like, I'm very chummy with the trigonometry guys who've got that popular podcast. And Joe Rogan, I don't know him, but you know that Joe Rogan, because I know the trigonometry guys do, has got one of the most powerful networks ever because he literally knows everyone. And he does these long interviews and he probably does, I don't know, two or three a week, whatever he does. But you accumulate that over time and the law of compounding and all the rest of it, that is one heck of a powerful network he's got. And so, so I, I don't think, you know, I'm not very good at going to parties and working out who the most influential guy in the party in the room to talk. I'm not very good at that, but I was a reasonable interviewer, but so podcasting is forces that discipline, but there's loads of other things I've done, which I think are better than that song, but they haven't gone viral. And, you know, the art of things going viral, it's it's not that easy to make things go viral. And a lot of it is luck. With that 17 million F off song, we got the timing right. But sometimes you don't. Well, and that's a fair comment, actually. And I think timing is really the ultimate thing because timing is so important in comedy. 
but like you say, so important in terms of being current. That's yeah. the thing, isn't it? And the fact that you just did that sequentially through a week, you had, you know, you, who would have known that you were doing ukulele lessons, which is bizarre anyway. I hope you don't mind me saying, because I wouldn't have done ukulele lessons, although my daughter loves ukulele. And then you suddenly write a song, co-write a song or whatever it is, then you record it, then you do the video, and then it's released. I mean, that's incredible. But you're still trying to do all the other things in between. How the hell do you fit it all in? Well, you know, I like, fortunately... Uh, I, somebody, somebody clever once said something like, do something you love because then it's not work, it's play. So, you know, I like playing sport, but apart from that, I don't really have a much of a social life. My work is my social life, basically. And, you know, I go to a gig and the gig's usually in a pub or a, in a comedy club and I have two or three pints as I do the gig and I catch up with whatever other comedians are on the bill. And that acts as my social life. I don't go to dinner parties and stuff. So, you know, that, that kind of, it just kind of works. Well, and that's great. And I, I love your kind of irreverence a little bit. I like the fact that you're a little bit of a revolutionary as well. You have that kind of bit where you just get your teeth into something and you think, I'm going to go for this. You know, that's the feeling I get. There's a passion behind it to uncover things or to just blow things up and see what happens. You're the cat among the pigeons. Is that fair to say? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that confrontational. Okay. You know, if, if, for example, you get two types of compare and you'll get the confrontational guy who identifies who the troublemakers in the room and confronts them early on and deals with them. I'd be much more of a sort of, I'll, I'll just get a good atmosphere going in the room and I'll say some things that will just make everyone feel friendly and I'll deal with it that way, which is a sort of non-confrontational but, you could say it's manipulative way of making sure there's a nice atmosphere in the room, but it's very rare that I'll do a gig as a compare when I'm the host. If I do one of my political songs in a gig, for example, if I did a Brexit song in a room full of Remainers, well, then it's going to kick off. But as a compare, I'm pretty non-confrontational. So I admire the people who do it, but I'm not like some of the people who go on Twitter just looking to argue with people. And, you know, that's what Twitter is there for. It's, it is for arguing because it's where ideas get thrashed out and you need to argue. Arguing on Twitter is winning the battle of ideas, I suppose. But on occasion, I have spats with people on Twitter and it, I'll be like in a frenzy thinking about it all day. So I, I just generally try and avoid it. But I'm quite happy to watch other people. <laughs> that's so funny. Well, and that's great because, I mean, I wouldn't say, yeah, you're directly confrontational, but what is really nice about it is you take the essence. I think people would find my songs confrontational, some of them. Well, well, yeah, anyway. but that, the nice thing about relating it to music, of course, I mean, I remember the Baron Knights from the sort of 60s and 70s is almost sort of off the back of that. They take something, they change it and make it quite funny. Yeah. And people relate to that. They relate to laughter and comedy, don't they? It's that sort of thing. It's the conduit well, that helps get the message across. I, I'll say I used to love the Baron Knights. Um, probably if I watch them now, like in comedy, the act of reversioning songs, there's a there's a real snobbery in comedy and a lot of people look down on reversioning songs. And I sort of think there are witty ways of doing it and there are tacky ways of doing it. So, for example there was a video that somebody made a few years ago where they took that song New York and they changed it to Newport. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> I love it. And so it was all that sort of New York, that sophisticated, um, I don't even know who sang New, I think it might have been Kanye, I don't even know who sang it, but the Newport one, one is, is just so funny. And so I think that's really good. And 
the Baron Knights really used to make me laugh. I was only a little boy, but I wonder if now it's one of those things like 17 million F offs is, is an old English folk tune called uncle Tom Copley, but that's one of the reasons it worked so well because it was that argument was so rooted in, you know, the national identity and who we are and all, all the rest of it. But again, that was, my ukulele teacher's idea and he won't he won't even put his name on his, my stuff because he doesn't like the swearing <laughs> oh well fair enough i mean i get that but, you know uh, he's got standards you know he does but yeah i mean he's the musical genius i i i just write the words but he he's a brilliant musician and and like a lot of brilliant musicians you know Underrecognized. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of talent. And actually, just talking about the Baron Knights, well, prior to them, of course, Peter Sellers used to do some fantastic stuff with the Beatles tunes. It's been a hard day's night. Yeah. The way he put to Hamlet was just brilliant. Yeah, he, he was good. And, you know, my first song was called The Upper Class Rapper. And, you know, I it was, it was an upper, I mean, that gag has been done to death now, but this was, you know, 1996, seven, I wrote it. And, you know, it was funny at the time, but then I found this old Peter Sellers sketch from the late fifties, where he was playing, um, you know, a country squire doing a song, and the lyric was, "I'm going to rock with the peasants, rock, rock. I'm going to ra with the peasants, ra, ra." You know, so it's the same gag, really. Totally, and he <laughs> totally understood what it was all about. You know, he was so unique, yeah. so unique. Listen, I, I, we, gosh, we've covered so much ground, and there were so many questions I wanted to ask, and you actually kind of some, answered some of them. But going back to uh, well, uh, where I discovered you, and this is really interesting. It was in 2015. I got really got into podcasts when I was much younger, and I heard your Virgin podcast, the first one that you did. Ah, uh, yeah, it was, yeah. I think it was with um, Luke. Um, was it Luke from Crowdcube? Luke Lang. Yeah, I think Luke, it was Luke Lang. Yeah. Yeah, that Virgin podcast that could have been massive. We we because b- with the Virgin brand, you know, I interviewed so many good people, but unfortunately, I don't know if you know the story. I mean, it was going great guns, and it was just at the right time. It was just, and it's the the mistake I made was not owning it because uh, basically it was their yes. thing, and I, I didn't want to do my own pocket. I want to be paid to do it, so I was on their payroll, and there was a lot of people in that organization on the other side who don't share my worldview. And we had had, uh, you know, they kept getting all these climate change guys on talking about climate change. Yeah. And one of them walked into the interview and he was literally, he's held his hands like this. Like he was, he was just like, he was like a monk. You could see the halo of, of holiness around his head. And every time we interviewed one and Richard Brand, Branson's really into all that. And every time we did somebody about climate change, just the interview got so boring. Oh, yeah. Just so boring. And the viewing figures fell off and everything. And I was like, we've got to get somebody else on to show the other side of the argument. Because, you know, this this is not, you know, the, the, the climate change argument is separate from, I actually happen to think the climate change argument is doing a great deal of harm to the environmental movement. Because they are not one and the same. And pollution and conservation and all that are very different things. But anyway, the whole thing's so politicised and as a result so corrupt. But anyway, so he was on. We had these two or three guys. And then one of the guys was like just trotting out rubbish. So I challenged him on a couple of things. Good for you. And then one of the viewers was going on the listeners, you need to change the presenter because the presenter won't give the man a chance to speak. And that is not me when I interview. Anyway. So then it's a classic case of a vocal minority. So then they said, 
I said, well, let's get another guy on who's got the other side of the argument. And at the time, David Cameron had just admitted to smoking weed. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> well, it had come out in his book or something. And uh, I knew this guy, James Dellingpole, a little bit. And he had smoked weed with David Cameron at university. They'd been at university together. So I said, let's get James Dellingpole on. We've got the scoop. I smoked weed with um, David Cameron. I smoked weed with the Prime Minister. What a great hook, eh? <laughs> yeah. And so it was a scoop. It was a big deal. So the first half of the interview was James talking about listening to Supertramp. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and, and, listen, and smoking weed with David Cameron. And then we started talking about climate change. And I said, what are the main arguments against all the stuff we're hearing? Why is it bogus? And James has written a couple of books about it. And James debunked it in a typically articulate way. And it went out. And then about, it wasn't even at the time, it was about two months later or a month later, this Guardian journalist called, um, it might be Graham Fennick or something. Anyway, this Guardian journalist, Australian, just put this hit piece out in the Guardian. Why is Richard Branson giving a platform to a climate change denier? Oh, dear. And he did that thing that they do where they just take select bits out of the interview, take it out of context. And it was horrible. And next thing I know, Virgin Podcast is cancelled. Oh, man, oh, man. And and all that, everyone, because everyone in the company was like, you know, they're, everyone's worried about their own back and they're all worried about their own career and nobody wants to pitch off Richard Branson and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, guys, you need to grow a pair because we're that we had three climate change guys on. We had one guy on for half an interview expressing another argument. And if you're going to allow yourself to be censored by some guy in The Guardian to, for that, when it's not even balanced, it's not like we had three full length climate. Anyway, they, they don't see it like that. And so they, the show got pulled. And it's a real shame because and then they took all the interviews down. So there's no longer any of those interviews up. And there were some really great, great interviews. I mean, re I remember interviewing Nick Wheeler, who's Charles Tirrett, all about shirts. There was a uh, about the dress sense of politicians. It was so interesting. And then there was a brilliant one with Alistair Campbell. There was another brilliant one with a guy from Innocent Smoothies. And most of it was with famous, famous millionaires and billionaires, successful businessmen, talking about how to build a business. There was an interview with a guy called Charles Duhigg, an American writer, with just so many quality, quality interviews and timeless. Uh, there's a brilliant one with John Matonis about Bitcoin. Um, I mean, I could just go on. And it, it's just one of those great shames. And they could have left the interviews up there. And they took them all down. And I, and I said, why did you take them down? And they were like, oh, they don't, they don't fit with where we want to take the brand. And it was really like those guys on the inside did not like me. They, and I remember, the, what was the guy who founded Innocent Smoothies? I had a massive argument with him about Brexit before the vote because he was like one of the champions of the Remain thing. And it was a really intelligent argument between two guys who just did not share the same worldview. And, you know, I remember him going, you know what your problem is? You know a lot. <laughs> Oh, seriously, is that what yeah. you said? And I liked it, Gosh. you know, but it was, you, yeah. know, you know, a lot of stuff. And it was, it was a really good, I've forgotten his name. And we get, and I see him every now and I run into him at a party or something and we get on great. And it was just an excellent, and we, uh, there was a guy in post, there was so many good interviews. And yeah, they took it all down. And, and I knew that basically the guys, they didn't want to give a platform to that. And it was a real shame because it could have been up, it could have competed with, you know, some of the best podcasts out there today.
It could have become a billion, you know, I don't know how much a podcast is worth, but many millions are big ones. Oh, I mean, if you're Joe Rogan, absolutely, you're off the scale. I mean, I love what you just said there because it was one and only podcast that I had as my favourite and I would listen to it every week. Yeah. And it's it had substance to it. And what I really liked what you just said there was that you could have that argument, you could have that great debate and not agree. And to me, debating is so important. There's teaching it in the schools again now. But for so many years, there was this dearth of, no, you don't debate, you don't disagree, you go along with it. No, you, you stand up and be counted. And that's the most important thing. That's why I do this podcast. Mm. I like to get controversial people on or people who've got an opinion because I want to make sure that, you know, anybody listening to this can get something out of that that says, you know what, what I'm thinking is okay because Dominic Frisbee did it and this is what he did, you know? And I love that, you know? Give it, let's inspire people. So actually, funny enough, talking about that on the side, I did have to search around for that first Virgin podcast. It's not there. It was really difficult to find. No, I found it. I found it. I did find it. Oh, well, yeah, the first one is still finding its feet. Are you halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson? Isn't Dominic a great guest? I love his point of view. But also, I was interested to find out where that great name came from. And also, what did mum and dad do? Well, Frisbee just means village of the people from the Frisian Islands, as in Frisian cows. And the Frisian Islands are Germany, Denmark, Holland, you know, in that bit of sea up there. Actually, I'm not sure if they're Denmark, but Holland, Germany, up there. And... You know, when the Danes and the Norwegians were invading Britain, Vikings, you know, there were Frisian Islanders among them, all part of that movement of people from Northern Europe west. And when Alfred the Great bought off the Danes with the Danegeld and the border went up through uh, the Midlands, up through Leicestershire, the village of Frisby is just on the other side of the Danegeld. So I guess they were bought off. So that's where the name comes from, just village of the people from the Frisian Islands. But my dad was from southeast London, Kent, uh, that sort of hinterland between southeast London and Kent. He was actually born in New Cross and, and then grew up in Welling. And his, his dad was a sort of working, worked on the railways, working class guy, boxer, quite high level boxer, not quite good enough. I think he was like British Southern Counties champions. He wasn't quite good to make it, good enough to make it as a pro, but, you know, good boxer. And, um, his wife, who he met at a party, and I think it was one of those stories where they had met and then they had to get married. His wife was probably a bit more middle class than him, uh, came from Brighton, a family of musicians. All They were all musicians. And I think they were sort of a middle class, maybe even upper middle class sort of Brighton family. If I go through on Ancestry and I do the um, history, like I can trace my grandmother's side back all the way to the 17th century or something, but everyone else is pretty much untraceable. Um, so that that was my dad's side, and my mother's maiden name was Vecchioni, and her dad was Italian, but he was actually the son of Italian immigrants, and his wife was... Uh, we thought she came from Wales, but her name was Hunter Bruton. So she had a double-barrelled name, which in those days was a sign of, um, you know upper middle classishness, and I drove through my daughter's at uh goes to school in Wells uh in in the west country and on the way we went to see her carol concert on the weekend and my mum and I drove through the village of Bruton on the way to Wells and mum said oh this is where my mum said she was from 
And then we drove past, it said Hunter Family something or other, and her name was, as I said, Hunter Bruton. So I don't know. We've got some contact with them. So, again, I think it's a case of probably an upper-middle-class mum getting off with an Italian waiter a little bit below her, maybe, and those are my grandparents on that side. So ethnically, I suppose I'm quarter Italian and three-quarters English, but there's a bit of Scandinavian in there and there's a bit of probably a bit of Irish in there as well. And so tell us about Dad then, because he became quite a famous playwright and there was a girl in my soup. That was a very famous play during the 60s and 70s, wasn't it? Yeah, he started out as an actor and he went through rep all through the 50s. Uh, he actually won a place at Oxford, Ruskin College, Oxford, a scholarship to do economics, but he never took it up. And I always thought he was bullshitting about that. But when he, when he died, I was going through stuff and I found the offer. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, I found the offer letter. So it's true. And uh, anyway, so he turned down a place at Oxford to go to drama school and then became a, an actor. And then while he was acting, he started writing. And his second play, he got had a bit of success with his first play and various TV commissions, which I think were easier to get in those days. And then his second play was written as a TV play and it was turned down and he converted it into a stage play. And it just was a bit like 17 million F offs. It just like his agent showed it to a producer called Michael Codron before he'd even adapted it. He just showed the TV script and Michael Codron was like, we're doing it and booked in these dates. And, and they did six weeks of tour and it was constantly being rewritten on tour. And then they brought it into the West end with John Pertwee and Donald Sinden and um, Barbara Ferris, and they put it on in the West End, and it became the longest-running comedy in the history of the West End. It broke all records. It made Michael Codron's fortune, ran for six years at the Globe Theatre and then at another theatre, I forget the name of which. It was turned into a film with Goldie Sellers and Peter Horn, and it made an incredible amount of money. Uh, and then in another side story that, that I don't particularly want to get into, um, my mum and dad got divorced and there was a crooked lawyer involved or lots of crooked lawyers and dad ended up losing everything. Oh, no. So it's, it's a real rags to riches job. And then he spent the rest of his life, you know, working and writing hard, but he never had, you know, in the 60s, they had rock star money. They did, yeah. You know, and they were the glamour couple and they were in all the papers and blah, blah, blah. My mother was extraordinarily beautiful. She's downstairs as we speak. She's over-visiting but she was a very beautiful woman and dad was a successful writer and he was good looking as well. And so they were a real glamour couple. And what did mum do? I mean, did uh, mum support dad? In, in She was a model. She was a model. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Incredible. So sort of Vogue, that type of sort of level, you know, doing all the various... Underwear. She was an underwear model. Why not? Why not? Every young boy's fantasy, eh? Say no more. <laughs> well, good for her. So you managed to fit in some time for a family because I did hear the daughter mentioned and you went to the Wells. I think she's gone to the University in Wells. So do you have an extended family? Uh, school. School. Oh, school. I apologize. Oh, yeah. Wells, Wells Cathedral School. Yeah. I know it very, very well, uh, yeah. actually. She's in her final year there. Oh, good for her. Good for her. I was going to say, because uh, I used to live down near Evercreech, near Shepton Mallet, so I know that area quite I, well. We drove through it on Sunday. 
there you go. What a small world that we live in. That's just up the road from Bruton. It certainly is. Well, and then here's me sort of, I don't know, 5,000 miles away in Canada, you know, deepest, darkest Canada in Alberta at minus 20, you know, but they are bizarre. But this, this, this show does that. I, I meet people from all around the world and then we suddenly have an connection somewhere and you think, mm-hmm. how did that happen, you know? So, okay, let's uh, move it right back because, again, one of the things that I loved about what you do at the moment is that you're an extremely confident speaker. I love the fact that you go and you just talk to the camera and you walk through. Is it? Is it Camden Cemetery you walk through or something? Where's that cemetery uh, you do all your videos in? It's I, th- I don't even know the name of that cemetery. I think it might be called... It's Bizarre Cemeteries in London because you'll have, like, the cemetery will be named, but it's not in the place that it's named after. So I think the cemetery is actually Lewisham Cemetery. And I am in the London borough of Lewisham, but I think it's... Uh, Broccoli is the area where I live, but it's not Broccoli Cemetery. I think Broccoli Cemetery is actually in Nunhead. (laughs) Seriously? I only film it there because, again, when I was at drama school, we had to go and get our photos taken for Spotlight. And the photographer once said to me, if you need to find somewhere quiet in a city, go to a graveyard. They're always quiet, even if they're next to a main road. And for some reason they are. And there's a park at the end of my road, maybe, you know, a couple of hundred yards walk, but it's just windy and blowy. Whereas the cemeteries, it's just a much nicer place. So I just stick my phone on a selfie stick and walk 50 yards out of the house and I've got a video. It's just really made out of convenience more than anything else. It, it comes across as very, very natural, which is lovely. And I think what's really interesting, I do my videos for a promotion on my radio program every week. I actually go to the dog park, you know. Okay. And then I suddenly realise I've got uh, Dakota barking in the background and other distractions and people calling their dogs. I never thought of a cemetery. Look at that. Well, I, I used to call it thoughts while I'm walking the dog because I actually used to walk the dog. The, the dog, I'm afraid, we lost the dog a year ago, sadly, but I used to walk the dog and do the video at the same time. Which is, is exactly what I do. <laughs> yeah, killed two birds with one stone. So one of the interesting videos you did, and I, I, again, what I find is really interesting about what you do is you bring these amazing little tidbits of information that you'd never dream of were important. So one of the videos you do was on helium. Now, who would have thought it, you know, that helium was so important to the world? And you just explained it in literally five minutes and how serious it is if we don't have a supply of helium gas. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of the videos I make because I write this Substack and it's a financial newsletter, a lot of the stuff is is investment related. But funnily enough, people, fund managers and people who manage money are often some of the most well-informed people you're ever likely to meet because they have to be, you know, and never mind what their politics are, they have to know what's going on in China, you know, second guess what Putin's going to do next, or they have to be aware of the lack of investment in oil infrastructure or whatever it is, if they're to navigate the investment landscape and manage money well. And so, yeah, you often find fan managers are incredibly well read. There are ignorant ones too, but you off, you know, the good ones will often be extremely well informed. And yeah, helium is, it's a tiny market. It's like a four or $5 billion market, which relative to you know, Apple or something is just inconsequential. But, you know, it's very important. We need it for MRI scanners and there are more and more MRI scanners going on than ever before. We use it in hard drives, increases the velocity in hard drives. All data centers use it. And most of it used to come from the United States strategic helium reserves, but they're exhausted. And and now there's a big scramble to get more helium. And it's it's the second most abundant 
element in the universe after hydrogen, but there's none of it down here. That's incredible, <laughs> isn't it? So, so yeah, so there's a big, I've just put out, in the course of putting out a big report on it, on, you know, how to invest in helium, what are the best companies. There's only, in the whole of North America, there's probably 10 companies. And there's this big scramble going on because let's say you found copper or gold or something, to turn that into a mine is going to take you 10 years. By the time you've, you know, drilled it out, got all the planning permission, got all the regulatory stuff, found the investment capital, built the mine. But from discovery to production, uh, you know, they just say 10 years, you know, and that deters investment because, you know, if you invest a brilliant app and upload it, it can have gone viral within a month. So that's why so much money goes into tech and so little goes into mining. The beauty of gas is you can find gas and you can be producing within a couple of years. So there was a sort of helium shortage identified and a load of companies sprung up. We've got, we're looking for helium and they attracted a load of investment capital. And there was a sort of, forgive the pun, a helium bubble in 2020. And all these companies went, you know, up five, 10 times, whatever. And they've all got helium, but none of them have been able to get it producing because it's it's much more complicated than producing just regular natural gas, methane which is just easier. And so you've got all these companies and two or three of them were supposed to be producing now and they haven't. And they're all saying we're going to be producing early next year or middle of next year or late next year. And who's going to get it right? And who's going to get it wrong? Because if they all get it right, the helium supply problem will be over in a couple of years time because these guys are all going to be producing. But you know, a couple have already slipped up. So who's going to get it right? And whichever company gets producing first is going to make a lot of money because they're the ones that can charge these top dollar prices that helium's currently fetching. But by next year, this time next year, maybe 18 months down the road, I think the game's going to be over. Really? So there's like this little window and there's this sort of race, race to get to production. And there's no, there's no spot market for helium. It's not like you, like gold, you just put it on the futures exchange in, in Chicago and it's all sold. A lot of helium is sold with, with what's called offtake agreements. So I know of one helium company, and I can't say what the name is, and I know that SpaceX has given, you need helium for satellites and space exploration. And if they don't have it, then they can't do what they do. And, you know, a space company needs to be putting satellites into space. That's how it makes money. So it needs the helium and it's not going to let that little microcosm of the bigger thing stop it. So it will pay what it has to. And I know of one helium company that SpaceX has just said, we, they've signed an offtake agreement, but the, for whatever reason, the company can't say that we have this offtake agreement with SpaceX, but I know which company it is. And here's the thing. I don't trust that company because their track record's terrible. Oh, wow. Seriously. <laughs> but oh, they, right. Yeah because they continually said they're going to do this, that, and the other, and they haven't. But they've got this offtake, confidentiality agreement, whatever, with SpaceX. And you're like, well, what does SpaceX know that I don't know? Well, exactly. But, it does make you think, doesn't it? Yeah. But, you know, and they're all doing these deals, either with SpaceX or or with a, you know, Netflix is another one that uses shed loads of helium in all its data centres. And so... Wow. Yeah. So there's they've got this... this it's a really interesting situation. 
Whoever gets it right is going to make a fortune, but getting it right is going to be the problem. <laughs> well, that's the point. I was just going to ask for a tip, but you obviously can't tell us who the company is, so we'll have to just wait and see. The tip is to read frisbee.substack.com, and if you sign up there, I'll be in the next few days, I'll be putting out my Helium report. Sounds superb. Thank you for that. One other thing before we go, because I know you've got to nip off to another interview. I love your take on losing weight. That, to me, just spoke to me, right? You know, because... I'm a 50-year-old guy, you know, from the late 50s, you know, up and down with weight, six foot two, 214 pounds, whatever that is in stone, or just over 14 stone. Uh, it's a nightmare to try and lose weight. But I think you hit all the key points, I think. And I think rather than me tell it, you tell it. What were the key points that you kind of figured out on losing weight? Well, I've always been probably, I've always felt I was a little bit heavier than I should be. And I've always, I've always played loads of sport and, uh, and I've never, I've always like, oh, God, why can't I just, you know, and then I've maybe a stone, maybe 10 or 14 pounds heavier than I should be. And then a year ago, I found myself at like 90 kilos, which would be uh, probably two stone heavier than I should be. Yeah. Maybe 25, 30 pounds heavier than I should be. And I was like, this has got really bad. And I was doing the 16-8 diet, which is when you don't eat... Um, 16 hours a day and you do eat eight hours a day, but I just kept breaking. I just didn't, couldn't stick to it. And I'd done the five, two diet in the past. And so I just went back to it and I lost a lot of weight very quickly. And then I plateaued for about nine months, but then I stuck at it. And then for one reason or another, I got sacked from a job I was doing. So I had a bit more free time on my hands. And I found this guy, I started playing tennis with this guy and then I'd cycle to the tennis and on my way to the tennis, I'd cycle up this hill several times and do that. And then I started running a bit and then I got involved in this swimming challenge. So I started swimming as well. So I was doing all this extra exercise, but what really kickstarted it was doing the five, two diet fast two days a week, but doing exercise on the days that you're fasting. Oh, yeah. So it's not just the fasting, but you burning calories on top of fasting and just suddenly the weight fell off me like kilo a week, uh, you know, three or four pounds a week. And I'm probably two or three pounds heavier than I'd like, than, you know, where I really want to be. And I'm still doing the five, two diet, but yeah, it's the five, two diet and exercise. And then don't eat late at night, avoid vegetable oils, seed oils, palm oil, rapeseed oil, canola oil, uh, any kind of vegetable or corn oil, sunflower oil, any of those oils, you know, they've all got sunflower and vegetable in the name. So you think they're really good for you, but the body can't break them down. So, and they are in everything. Absolutely. Because the food industry needs them to preserve the shelf life of food, especially bread. So if you're going to eat bread, eat French bread that's baked that day because they don't put seed oil in that. But anything that lasts a long time is generally dodgy. <laughs> but any so avoid avoid seed oils, and if you can, drink less. It's interesting. Actually, I did a little bit of research uh, quite a few years ago. A lady from Trinidad and Tobago told me, "You've got heartburn. I can solve your problem. Go on the hay diet." And I said, "Hay diet? What? Eat hay? No, no." Doctor Hay, he was a physician in New York, and he invented this food combining diet, and it separated out. It was a way of eating separated starch and protein. And he noticed he had Bright's disease, and it was pretty serious back then in the early 20th century. And a lot of his, um, you know, clients were, you know, colds and flus, all the usual things you get. He decided to change the way he ate, and he separated his starch and protein. So he had a protein meal, you can have with him veggies, wait four hours, 
have a starch meal, a baked potato with some salad. And what he did was he eventually started to lose weight very, very naturally. And the body could digest very easily those items separately every four hours. But when you combine them together, especially with starch and protein, it would sit in his stomach for eight hours and ferment. And I thought, yeah, you know, yeah. So I did it and I started to gradually lose weight and started to feel great, didn't get colds, didn't get any ailments. And it was incredible. The body could process things. But the other thing I found as well, and you hit the jackpot there, natural animal fats. When you're going to cook something, get a bit of lard out. Cook it in the lard. Mm -hmm. Don't go overboard. Yeah. Just use the natural animal fats that are available and you'll be fine. Yeah. I mean, I try and if I roast potatoes, I roast them in goose fat. If I have if I have fried food, I'll fry it in a mixture of olive oil and butter where possible. And I just do not use vegetable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, I could talk to you for another hour, but I know you've got to go to another interview. And just a couple of questions before we go. Sure. Very, very briefly. And I always like to ask this because it really stumps a lot of people. But if you met yourself on a, I don't know, a London bus when you were 18, what advice would you give yourself now that you've got the knowledge that you've got? Something like, like uh, for years... I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I remember like in my mid-twenties, I would be walking down the street and almost break down in tears not knowing what I wanted to do. And I know my eldest daughter's going through something similar. My younger daughter and my eldest son that seem to have a bit more clarity, but my elder daughter is like, what am I going to do? She's 20. And I think this hurts a lot of young people. And so I think the most important thing is to just go out and do something. It's a bit like they say, it doesn't matter what decision you make. The important thing is to make a decision, even if it's the wrong one, because you just act on the wrong decision. Then you soon learn it's the wrong decision. You go back and it becomes the right one. So I, I would just go out and do stuff. And if you can travel, because see how the rest of the world lives. There's a huge world out there. Get plenty of sunshine. And, you know, we've all got regrets. I've got so many regrets. But I don't think anybody regrets travelling and going on a trip and seeing somewhere. So I would say do something rather than nothing. Don't let indecision bind you. Travel and don't drink as much. <laughs> That's the hard one. I had to give it up in the end. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, you know, I, I've got so many friends who've given it up and they all just say they're so much happier. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I drink too much. And on the days I don't drink, when I'm fasting, for example, I just feel a million dollars. Oh, you do. Absolutely. And I get so much. I, I had a fasting day yesterday and today I've just been like, whoa, 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 whoa. I've just got so much done. And you're firing in all the six cylinders. Yeah. It's great. Okay, Dominic, if people want to get hold of you, what's the best way of dropping your line? Uh, Frisbee.substack.com is my Substack, and I'm on Twitter at Dominic Frisbee. And everyone, I haven't even talked about it, but if you want a CD for Christmas, go to DominicFrisbee.com slash shop and get yourself... Uh, a CD, either of my comic songs or of this musical, Kisses on a Postcard, which I mentioned, which is the only reason I ever became a financial writer. But that now exists. We made it during the lockdown. I love it. I've already uh, got my order in. Oh, brilliant. For sure. But uh, Dominic, thank you so much for fitting us into your busy schedule. It's been a real pleasure. And in fact, I'd love to do this again sometime, maybe in six or 12 months time, see where you are. Would you be up for that? Anytime. 
just drop me a line. I love it. Love it. Okay, well, thanks again. Take care. Have a great Christmas. Thanks very much, and, and you're an excellent interviewer. Thank you. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Dominic Frisby, your only financial writer and comedian. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America. <laughs> <laughs>